If you would take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 2, what we're going to do this morning is wrap up almost all the way a sermon series that we've been going through that we're calling We Tunes. What does it mean as a church to sing together in the 21st century and to try to do it in a way that matches God's word? What does it look like to gather for worship? And so we've been walking through this process. If you have not been with us or you just want a quick review, if you got a bulletin and you turn it over to the back, there are some notes there. And at the top, it gives you a little idea of where we've come from about the foundations for biblical worship, gathering together to sing. We don't do it out of envy of what another church is doing. We're not trying to be better or compete with someone else. We're not driven by envy. We know we need God's word and God's spirit. This is not a competition between the word of God and the spirit of God, always working together and trusting, trusting that process. And to know that we operate under the new covenant, that we are guided in our worship and in our lives by who Jesus is and what he's done, what, how the cross and the resurrection, how this new covenant impacts our lives. How do we do that? Well, we do that up in and out. So when we've seen, we've seen up toward God. We are singing in response to who God is and what he's done in our lives. Musical worship is designed to set our mind on things above, not on things below. And so we're doing that, we're singing up. Also, scripture teaches us that we've seen in. We've seen with one another. And not only with one another, we saw last week that in the New Testament, we've seen to one another. That's why what we do on Sunday morning is not a concert. It's why we don't drop the lights down extremely low. Like I said last week, I kind of like the idea of the lights being a little bit lower just to set a mood, but we, we're not in to set a mood. New Testament calls us to sing to one another and with one another, and so there's an inward aspect to musical worship when God's people gather together. We sing up, we sing in, but we also sing out. What we're gonna see this morning through scripture is that when God's people sing, it's not only up toward him, it's not only in toward themselves, but it's also out toward others. And we're gonna use a couple of different passages in the New Testament, not settling too long on each one, but trying to take each in and of itself and look at this idea of what does it mean to sing out. So just to get us started, we're gonna read this passage from Acts chapter two, and then we're gonna back up and take another kind of running start at it. So Acts chapter two, and you're actually gonna to have to go to the end of that chapter. So if you're in your phone, and you need to scroll down just a little bit. We're going to start in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And then, like I said, we're going to back up and take a running start at it. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of God. The goal of seeing out the goal of making our worship known to others is that they in turn would come to know and worship God. 
John Piper in his book called Let the Nations Be Glad says it this way, and this quote is on your notes there on the back of the bulletin, but he says it this way. He says, missions exist because worship does not. What he means by that is the reason we're engaged in missions is because there are people who worship someone or something other than the one true God. If everyone worshiped God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, missions would be finished. And one day that will be true. One day missions, sharing the gospel, will come to an end because God will bring all things to completion. But the reason we're engaged outwardly, the reason we don't just focus inwardly is because there are people who do not know and worship God. They do not know that God has taken on their sin, has taken on their death, that we don't earn our way to God, that you're not here this morning to check off a box to earn more spiritual points to make God love you more, that God has shown us his love through Jesus Christ, and so we respond to him by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ and worshiping him completely. That message needs to be made known to people who are trying to find righteousness and hope and life all on their own, apart from Jesus Christ. So we know that that gospel needs to be made known. And it's not just far away, and it's not just here, it's both. Sometimes we get into these debates, do we need to share the gospel here, do we need to share it far away? Don't get pulled into that sort of division. Scripture is so clear that yes, we share the gospel right where we are. God has placed you in neighborhoods, he's placed you in situations to share the gospel here. We do it with people near to us, and we do it with people far away who have no access to the gospel, so we don't need to get sucked into these divisions. Equally so, we do it corporately. We're engaged in missions as a church family. There are things that we agree to do together to make the gospel known. Equally so, there are things you do individually, you do as a family, that my family does, that we don't all participate in. Once again, there's this division that can be created between, well, are we supposed to do this as a church family, or are we supposed to do this individually? It's both. There are things we do together as a church, and then there are things we do as individuals and families that God calls us to. The main purpose, though, is making the gospel known. What does this have to do with music? What it has to do with music is one of the ways that God has given us to proclaim and display Jesus is through corporate worship and especially through our musical worship. That as we sing about God, other people would hear that message and they would respond in faith. So here's how it goes. We've seen to the nations in order that all nations would sing to God. There's this amazing cycle that God has set in place, this amazing irony that he saves a people and saved people's scene in order that others would hear about that salvation. Let me give you a couple of Bible verses about this. Psalm chapter 96, one through three is, is a key passage here. Psalm 96 says, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. So who's supposed to sing? All the earth. How? Well, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. So God gives a command that all peoples, that all nations would worship him. How is that command supposed to be carried out? Well, he sends his people to all the nations in order to sing to them, to make known his praise. What's the result of it? Well, it's found in Revelation 7. There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. How do you get to Revelation 7, 9? You go through Psalm 96, 3. 
You declare God's goodness. You declare God's glory to all people. How do we do that? One of the ways we do that is through musical worship. It's through how we live it out as a church family, both gathered together and when God sends us out. So what I want to do this morning is walk through three passages from the New Testament that tie together music and missions. You can follow along in your notes as that's helpful for you, but just know in your mind we're going to walk through three passages from the New Testament that purposefully tie together music and missions. The first one is back there in Acts chapter 2. We read the whole section earlier, but I want us to focus just on verses 46 and 47 for a second. It says there in Acts 2, verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So the followers of Jesus are the Jewish people at this point. They're continuing to meet together, but they're meeting together in the name of Jesus. So they're meeting together. It says they broke bread in their homes. So they're not just meeting at the temple. They're meeting together in their homes, breaking bread, eating together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. One of the ways they're praising God is through music, through prayers, through thanksgiving. They're praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What I want you to see from these verses, there's obviously a lot of things we can explore. What I want you to see from these verses is when a church is gathering together, consistently living out their faith, consistently worshiping together, consistently sharing together, having favor with all people, one of the results of that is missions happens. Just naturally, God brings people to salvation through his church doing what they're supposed to do, loving one another, praising him, and engaging with the people around them. If you get very nervous about the idea of sharing your faith, if you get very nervous about the idea of talking to someone else about the things of Christ, be encouraged by these verses that one of the best ways that you can be engaged in missions, one of the best ways you can be engaged in evangelism is by engaging fully with a healthy local church, saying, I'm going to meet together to worship the Lord wholeheartedly. I'm going to care for those around me. I'm going to have favor with the people that God has placed in my life. I'm not saying that we don't have to use words, we do. We do share the gospel verbally, but one of the best ways you can be on mission is to give yourself fully to what's happening in a local church. And as a result of that, consistent worship, God will draw people to salvation. Let me show you another place in the book of Acts that this happens. So turn over to Acts chapter 16. So the first way that music and missions go together is when a local church gathers together to worship, God will draw people to himself. When a church is healthy, when a church is functioning, when we're giving ourselves to that, God will use that to draw people to himself. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I want you to go over to Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 25. This is the story of Paul and Silas being in prison if you have some church background, you grew up in a Sunday school, vacation Bible school, you might have heard this particular story before. This is the story of Paul and Silas. Look in verse 25. So we're in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, and, and these verses will be on the screen as well if you don't have a copy in front of you. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, 
and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So this is another example in the book of Acts how God is bringing people to salvation. How does it start? Well, back in verse 25, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. Obviously enough, this is not a regular church service happening here. They're, they're in prison, so it's not what you would consider a traditional service, but they are together, and in the midst of very difficult circumstances, they're not complaining, they're not grumbling, they're not giving up on God. They are seeing praise to him. They are trusting him, and what they are doing, it says in verse 25, the other prisoners were listening to them. Here's my encouragement to you. When you praise God, when you trust him, when you gather together with his people to worship in the midst of very difficult circumstances, he will use that to impact people around you. One of the most powerful ways that you can share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world around you is when you continue to worship him wholeheartedly in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. Because people around you will look at that and if it's not fake, I'm not saying fake it, I'm not saying show up and act like there's nothing wrong in your life. We mourn, we're in pain, we hurt, but we say, I will continue to praise my God. I will continue to worship him. I will continue to trust him. When you do that, people around you will look and say, there's something different there. A curiosity factor will go off in their minds of how can you continue to sing how can you continue to praise God in the midst of what you're going through? And God will use that to draw people to himself. When you read about the persecuted church around the world, one of the things that you find consistently showing up is the idea of music. The power that comes when the people who are facing persecution still gather together to worship the Lord. There's a guy that's become fairly well known in, in recent years for writing some books. And he, he writes under the pseudonym Nick Ripkin. Uh, some of his books are called The Insanity of God, which I know strikes you as maybe a non-Christian title, but he, he has a purpose behind that title. He wrote a book called The Insanity of God. He wrote a book called The Insanity of Obedience. But through some very difficult circumstances in his life, he went out to meet people in the persecuted church and to learn about their stories. How do they continue to keep going? How do they continue to trust the Lord? And he found that one of the things that stood out was the idea of music. And just for a couple of minutes, I want you to watch this video, this music video, that tells the story of one of these people from the persecuted church. This is a guy who was put in prison for leading a, a Bible study, a, for developing a house church. He's put in prison, and it tells the story of how he's sane in prison, and God used that to draw people to himself. So watch this video just for a minute here. My name is Dimitri. I was born a Russian man. I was a factory worker until 1960 and I started teaching the Bible to my two little boys that's when the journey began 
a picture of modern day Paul and Silas at work, someone who is facing all this opposition, all this suffering, it continues to sing, continues to proclaim the gospel, and you see the effect that it has on, on the people around him. After Dimitri was released from prison, he went back to his house, back to that house church and continued to invest. His boys grew up to continue to lead that house church and God continued to use them to reach the people there. Even when I suffer, I sing. And as a result of that, God draws people to salvation and God draws people to himself. Here's the last passage I want us to look at this morning. We're gonna do a little bit more in depth with it. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is over just a little bit to the right in your Bible from the book of Acts. If you're in your phone, you can scroll down. But we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So we looked at Acts 2, that when we gather as the church, when we live as the church, that God uses that. He uses our worship. He uses our musical praise to impact people, to draw people to salvation. Even when we suffer... We continue to sing, we continue to worship him, and he uses that to draw people to salvation. And let's look at a third example here. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 20 at these verses that we're, that we're looking at here. It says here in verse 20, brothers, brothers and sisters, those who are gathered as believers, brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law or in scripture, it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Okay, a couple of things going on here just at the beginning to, to orient you to what's happening. Paul's in the middle of a discussion with the people here at Corinth related to the idea of speaking in tongues, uh, and, and specifically speaking in tongues in gathered worship in such a way that there's no one else around to interpret, there's no order to what's happening, it's just one for all, all for one, speaking in tongues. They become preoccupied by this idea. Just laying it out there, we don't have time to untangle that, that entire topic, so I'm sorry to be... Uh, guilty again of throwing out a topic and then not, un not untangling it all the way, but we don't have time to talk in depth about this issue related to speaking in tongues. Other than to say right here, the point is that the people were so preoccupied with them that, that Paul says that they've become immature in the way that they're acting. And he uses a passage from the Old Testament. If you're reading it in a hard copy or maybe even in your phone, Verse 21 might have a different font, or it might be inset a little bit. It might look different. It's because he's, he's drawing from a passage out of Isaiah where God gives an example that even if he speaks in a different language, even if he gives this message in a different language, the people still aren't going to turn to him. And so he's using the example that just if, even if something like speaking in tongues happens, it doesn't mean that people are going to turn and, and find salvation. So go down to verse 22. Verse 22 is notoriously one of the most difficult to interpret verses in the New Testament. But verses 22 and 23, it says, Tons then are a sign, and almost certainly it means here a sign of judgment. Not a positive sign, a negative sign. Tons are a sign of judgment, not for believers, but for unbelievers. So if I go into a gathering 
and people are speaking in tongues and I don't understand what's going on, there's no way for me to escape my judgment. There's no way for me to find hope in that situation. So it, it almost becomes a sign of condemnation, a sign of judgment in this sense. So it's a sign for, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. Meaning it's designed to function in such a way that believers see that when God's word is spoken clearly in a way that people can understand that he'll draw people to himself. Now that would take a lot more time to, to make my case for why I think verse 22 means that. But go on to verse 23 right here. Verse 23 says, and this is where it starts to become extremely practical for us in this topic of music and worship. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues... And some who do not understand, or some versions will say outsiders or inquirers, some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? There's a word there that either means outsiders or uh, inquirers. If you drill down behind it with the Greek word and you just read the Greek word out, it's the word idiot. Uh, so this is always one of the words that they introduced to us first in Greek class just to keep us enthused, but uh, it's the word idiotes, and so the idea of idiot here, though, is not, if you're here, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're coming in, we are not calling you an idiot. The pastor's not doing that. Um, it, it's a word, though, that meant unskilled, uneducated, somebody who wasn't part of the inner circle who was coming in to be a part of this gathering. So that's the reason sometimes the term outsider will be used, even though that's not particularly a, an endearing term either. But it just means someone who's not a part of the inner circle. They weren't raised in this idea. So they come in and they see all these people speaking in tons. Paul says they're going to go out of there and say that you're out of, their mind, out of your mind. They're not going to get anything out of that. They're not going to be able to understand. Paul's big idea in this passage is the understandable nature of corporate worship, the intelligibility. Can somebody who's not a part of your inner circle, somebody who's not a believer in Jesus Christ, can they come to your gathered worship and understand what's going on? Can they connect? For lack of a better phrase, can they relate? Can, can they find their point of, of connection there? We'll go on down there in verse 24. In verse 24, it says, If an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, so speaking the word of God, that person will be convinced or convicted by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so that person will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So what happens when the service is understandable or when it's intelligible? Paul says salvation will happen. The person will hear the word of God, will become convicted, will find forgiveness, and will turn and worship the Lord, giving themselves fully to the Lord, and, and find that salvation. So if they come in and they can't understand, they're just going to walk away saying, that's not for me, those people are crazy. If they can understand, there's an option that they're going to repent, turn to the Lord, and begin to worship the Lord. Which brings us to one of the trickiest questions that you have to ask when you're talking about gathering as a church. And I realize that this passage is about speaking in tons versus prophesying. 
but you can make some really strong applications and draw some really strong connections to the idea of music and just to the broader idea of what do we do when we gather together on Sunday morning. Here's the question. Is the Sunday morning worship gathering, is the main purpose of this gathering evangelism? Is the main audience for a Sunday morning worship gathering those who are Christians and those who are not Christians? Or, or those who are not Christians. Let me tell you why this question is so important but also uh, so controversial. You track back in the history of the church and you don't go back very far, you just go back into the 19th century and you have these big field crusades, these big field revivals that are going on, big, big tent revivals, big camp meetings. Uh, men like Finney who are going out and proclaiming the gospel and many people are, are responding. What begins to happen slowly, you, you can't draw a complete connection, but what begins to happen slowly is the idea of a revival or a field crusade, students think Falls Creek uh, type gatherings, local churches gathering together on Sunday morning begin to think our Sunday morning gathering needs to look more like that. And so revivalism, big crusades, big camp meetings, that idea, that, that type of gathering begins to become the model for how you do Sunday morning gathered worship. Fast forward a little bit, a lot. You get into mid to late 20th century, and you have churches like Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, led, led by men named Bill Hybels, and they come together and they start to look around and say, our non-Christian friends, they're not attending church. Our church gathering is the most irrelevant uh, uninviting type of thing that that person could ever imagine. And so what they start to do is they start to say, what would it look like if we created a church that would be appealing to our unchurched friends? Take another step down the road. You have a man named Andy Stanley. Uh, Andy Stanley may mean nothing to you, but I know many of you listen to Charles Stanley before you come to church, so you get one good sermon on a, on a Sunday. So doesn't bother me, I understand it, I just live with that reality, so that's, that's okay. Charles Stanley's son, Andy, though, started a church out in Atlanta called North Point Community Church. The slogan for North Point Community Church is that they want to be a church that unchurched people love to attend. Take another step, even closer to home. We live in the world of Life Church, of Victory Family Church, of Journey Church, churches that are extremely appealing and focus very directly on how do we reach people who are not followers of Jesus Christ and who purposefully design Sunday morning worship gatherings to appeal to someone, to be captivating for someone who is not a Christian. And so we're back around to our question, is the Sunday morning worship gathering, is it what it looks like when people gather together to worship, is that primarily for the purpose of evangelism, is the primary audience a non-believer or is the primary audience someone who's a Christian? Well, look at the time. <laughs> I guess it's time to be going now, so uh, no, sorry, I, I can't leave that one untangled. We actually have to deal with this question, so. When you look across Scripture, when you look across Scripture, everything that I see, everything that just stands out is, is the direct answer to that is the Sunday morning regular gathering for worship is for believers. I just, you just see that over and over and over again. It's designed so that God's people are drawn together to spur one another on to love and to good deeds, to encourage one another, to lift up their praise to God, to edify one another. 
I feel really strongly about that. And I think you can make a strong biblical case for that. I think you can make a strong theological case for that, that the Sunday morning worship gathering, whenever that church gathers together for worship, the primary focus there is that God's people are gathering together to worship him and to edify and encourage one another, gathering around the Lord's table, gathering around the word of God preached, gathering together to pray. Here's the danger. Here's the danger. The danger is that in that biblical theological foundation, we become so inwardly focused, we become so inwardly focused that we completely stop thinking about those who are not believers or those who are outsiders. And so a good thing gets taken to a degree that actually can become a bad thing. So what happens is we've seen whatever we want to see, we do whatever we want to do. We say whatever we want to say with no thought to those who are not believers or those who are outsiders. And so here's the line we have to walk. How do we say, on the basis of God's word, the primary Sunday morning gathering when the church gets together is for believers, and at the same time say we can't become so closed in, so inwardly focused that we forget those who are not believers, those who might be coming in. How do we untangle that a little bit? Well, here's three goals that I think you see from this passage. If you try to say, how do you do this? What are we aiming at? What are the three goals that, that, that you see here? The one first goal is that you would be open. I think you see very clearly in these verses that the Sunday morning worship gathering, the primary gathering of a believers of a local church, should be open. There's an expectation that there are going to be people there who are not Christians. There are going to be people there who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Family members, you just use the simple one, children. Those in your family who are not yet following Christ, have not yet repented of sin and trusted in Christ, but they're there. People who are just curious. People who are hurting and looking for hope and looking for healing and say, I don't know where to go. I think I'm going to go try church again because it's been a long time since I was there. They're going to come. All kinds of reasons that somebody might come and be a part of it. And so what we want to say is, is our church gathering open? You say, well, of course it is. But if you've ever been fresh eyes on a situation, <laughs> uh, maybe you've been in a place for 5, 10, 20 years, you start to not see what a new person sees. And so sometimes the way we conduct ourselves, the way things even look, the way it feels, which is a really hard thing to get at, all those things can scream closed to somebody who's coming in from the outside, even though we look and say, oh yeah, we're totally open, anybody's welcome here. And then you have to start asking, are we really open? Is the way we conduct ourselves, the way we present ourselves, the way we do things, is it open to someone to be able to come in? Number two, so is it open? That's one goal. Number two, is it understandable? And when you drill down right on what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 14, this is his issue. Can someone come in and understand what's going on there without being a part of the inside crowd? This has to do with our music, this has to do with our interaction with one another. This has to do with the preaching. But are we presenting ourselves in such a way that somebody can understand us? You say, well, we speak English. Of course they can understand us. No, normally we speak churchese. Uh, we don't usually speak English. We normally speak, speak churchese. Uh, and, and people sometimes really struggle 
understanding our, our church language? Do they really understand what's, what's going on here? Do the way we communicate? Here's where it gets controversial, and we're just gonna barely touch on this. Even the idea of music style almost functions as a language in and of itself. How you communicate yourself, how you present yourself almost feels like a language. If we had a group of people who were gathered here that speak English and we say we're only going to speak Spanish from the stage because they should be able to understand us, you would say that was crazy. But if you gather together with people and you say normally during the week they speak this type of music style and then we show up on Sunday and we speak another music style, are you, inter- are you making it understandable? That's kind of where this whole topic starts to kind of draw itself together. So is it open? Is it understandable? And then third, and hear me out on this, is it convicting? Because the danger that we run, the, the danger that we face, is that we would be open and would be understandable, but in the process, we would do away with the gospel, that we would water down the gospel, that we would remove it altogether, and we are not going that direction. Because someone has come in looking for hope, looking for healing, they're not a believer, but they're coming to your worship service, and you don't talk about the one thing that you have to offer that brings hope and healing and salvation. At that point, it starts to look like a bait and switch. You do anything you can to get somebody in the door, and then you sell them a completely different product than they thought that you were going to be able to offer them. And we can't go down that road because that's not helpful, helpful for anybody. In the early years of Willow Creek and some of these other groups that were trying to be very focused on those who are not believers, they went so far as taking all the crosses out because that would be offending, or they didn't use Bible verses because those would be offending. The issue is the gospel that we proclaim, that in our sin we're in rebellion against God, that we're dead in our sin, we're separated from him, and the only way we can be made right with him is through Jesus that's offending enough. <laughs> that's a stumbling block. That, that is always going to be something that people are going to struggle with. What we don't want is for them to stumble over other things. So do we have traditions? Do we have preferences? Do we have things that we do, ways that we present themselves that create a stumbling block before anybody ever gets to the gospel? We have to keep the cross. If we lose the cross, we've lost everything. We have to keep the word of God. If we're not proclaiming the word of God, there's no way that anyone's gonna experience true life. We have to preach the gospel because that is our hope for life. We're not giving up any of those things, but the question is, do we do it in a way that's understandable and that's open? So how are some ways that we can kind of live this out? What are some, some practical ways that we do this? I put a couple of options on your notes there to, to, to work this out. First, invite others and practice hospitality. And and by hospitality, I mean both in your own home and when someone comes as a guest to Emmaus. Are we inviting others and are we practicing hospitality? I realize I can sound very elementary, but, but don't miss the fact that the longer a church exists and the longer a person has been a believer, the less likely they are to engage someone who's not a Christian, the less likely they are to invite them. Why? Well, usually it's just because they don't have as many non-Christian friends at that point. But even worse is if we're not careful, apathy can set in. And we become so inwardly focused that we lose sight of what Jesus has called us to do to make disciples of all nations. What I don't want you to miss with churches like Life Church and Victory Family and Journey and North Point, what I don't want us to miss with those churches is in their desire to 
do church a certain way, almost always they're doing that out of an intense desire for their non-Christian friends to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so do I think that their audience focus and the way they gather sometimes on Sunday morning is, is not the best way to do it? Yeah, I'm, I've been very straightforward. This is going on the internet, I can't take that back. It's out there. But what I don't want you to miss, what I don't want us to miss and what we desperately as a church family need to learn from is the heart behind what they're seeking to do, how much they desire for their unchurched friends to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, how much they desire to reach out. And we have to get that as Emmaus because if we're not careful, we can do things all correctly. We can gather together, but we do it in a way that never engages someone who's far from Christ, that never engages someone who's looking for hope and healing. And we just cannot lose that part. That goes to number two. Number two is that we have to set aside selfishness and, and preferences. Are we holding on to anything that hinders someone from really being able to understand and connect with the gospel? Are we holding on to any traditions? Grandparents, parents, is there anything that you would hold on to that you would say, this is more important than my child or grandchild being able to connect with a local church where they're able to understand what's going on, connect with what's going on, and hear the gospel? Students, are you in a place that you say, I desperately want my friends to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but I want to be able to bring them to a church that operates as a church and not as a concert, that operates as a gathering of believers gathered together to worship the Lord, to respond in salvation. My heart is that that would happen, but I know that I don't want to invite my friends to something that's a bait and switch. I really want them to see what it looks like to be engaged with a local church. What we want is for someone to be able to come as an outsider, someone to come who's not a believer and to say, you know what, I'm not sure I believe what they believe, and I'm not sure I'm really ready to commit myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, but I understood what went on there. I saw people who really wanted to worship the Lord and who were really engaged with that, and now I really need to think about this carefully. And I know I can go to somebody and talk about this. Number three. Number three is that when we're here, we would worship wholeheartedly and we would pray for transformation. Imagine someone comes into a gathering of believers like this and they see people who uh, just frankly don't look like they care, don't look like they love the people around them, don't look like they're engaged in what happens. Imagine what that communicates to somebody who comes in. What that communicates is either this is not very important or I'm gonna look for help somewhere else because there must not be much to this. The way we engage in worship, not, not just in singing, but the way we connect with one another, the way we operate speaks the gospel. It displays the gospel to people who come and they are able to see that on display and then say, wow, I'm convicted. I, I, I see my sin exposed and I'm gonna turn to the Lord and, and worship him. Number four, so invite others and practice hospitality, hospitality, set aside selfishness, worship wholeheartedly, and then fourth, follow up by sharing the gospel personally. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you just heard the pastor a few minutes ago call you an idiot and you're like, oh man, this is just a worst nightmare experience for me. Hear me out on this. More than anything, we never, 
ever want to treat anyone as a project. We interact with people person to person. We connect with people because they're created in the image of God and we believe that through Jesus Christ there's hope for salvation. There's hope for eternal life. There's hope for freedom in your life. And so if you know people who are gathering together and they're looking for hope, they're looking for healing, invite them to church and then connect with them. And if you need an easy way to connect with someone personally, just say, hey, did you understand what was going on? Was there anything that happened when we gathered together that was confusing for you or that you didn't understand what was happening or that you have more questions with because you're showing that person that you care. You don't just invite somebody and say, well, I hope Owen does a good job. Owen's gonna try hard, but it's you who God has put in their life. It's you who invests in that person. It's you who loves that person and wants to see them come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so God puts us in situations where we're able to treat one another as people, not as projects. As we try to put all of these things together, what we've talked about this morning is how does our existence as a church, what we do in here and the way that we live when we leave this place, and that includes our music, how do all of those things impact those who are not currently followers of Jesus Christ? And are we willing to die to ourselves so that other people would come to a point of being able to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to hear the gospel and to respond to that? I don't know how God's working in your life right now. I don't know if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and maybe you're under conviction you know you need to respond to the gospel. If you're here and you've been to church for a really long time and it's been a really long time since you invited anybody to a worship gathering, that God would draw you to be engaged in that way. If you're here and you say, you know what, I'm here faithfully, but I have to admit if somebody came in and watched me, it wouldn't be a pretty picture. They wouldn't see worship on display that this would be a time to repent and say, when I'm here, I'm going to engage wholeheartedly with what it means to be a part of a local church. I'm gonna love those around me. I'm gonna sing with all my heart. I'm gonna engage with the preaching of the word of God. I don't want you to leave this place, though, feeling beat up. I want you to leave knowing the joy and the freedom that comes with being a part of a church. We're not gonna do everything perfectly. We're gonna work through things together but we're committed to the word of God and we're committed to making the gospel known to people who desperately need to hear that message. Let's pray together and then we're gonna sing with Jordan and Jarrett a closing song here in just a minute. Father, I pray that as we have gathered together this morning to worship you, God, as we try to think through these things biblically and theologically about what it means to be a church, God, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us patience with one another, that we would worship you and trust you and follow you. God, that you would guard our hearts from apathy, guard our hearts from any form of religion that says, I'm just gonna do this and it better be done the way I like it, when I like it, how I like it. God, guard us from that. God, help us to be a people who are constantly engaging others with the good news of Jesus and the way that we live and the way that we speak and the way that we sing through the midst of difficulty. Father, we want to be a church that's a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we sing this closing song, 
as people respond in prayer here at the altar, as they respond in prayer right where they are, God, work in our hearts over the next couple of minutes as we seek to be obedient to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.